Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, welcome to New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we're very lucky to have Professor Clayton Wisnett as a guest. He is Chapman Professor of Humanities and European History at Wolford College and author of numerous publications. Today, we'll discuss his most recent book entitled Queer Identities and Politics in Germany, A History, 1880 to 1945. This book appeared with Harrington Park Press in 2016. Hello, Clayton. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. Good to be here. To start, uh, I wanted to ask uh, one of our typical opening questions, uh, and that is, I was wondering if you could discuss the origins of your interest in the field of German studies. Uh, But I was also as an addendum to that question, I was wondering if you could talk about the circumstances that led you to both research and write this particular book. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, yeah, in my case, it sort of gelled over time. I uh, didn't think I was going to be a German historian back, um, you know, even in high school. I originally thought I was going to do physics and sort of switched over from physics to history in the course of um college. And, um, and then even once I switched to history, I um, toyed around with Middle Eastern history for a while. Um, but it really was, I guess, uh, a bunch of different things that sort of came together for me. Um, first of all, uh, I took German language, and that made, a, I think, a really big difference. I, uh, I took German language during high school and college, and that's probably one reason I ended up uh, heading off in the direction of German history. Uh, but then, then beyond that, uh, growing up in Wisconsin, I was uh, I grew up in a little town in northern Wisconsin, um, and uh, a lot of German food, some German people in that region. So that probably made some impact. Um, but then other things, uh, I remember reading a, a Second World War history in middle school and really loving it, and sort of uh, initially falling in love with sort of Second World War history. And then high school, I also read a lot of philosophy. I was really always interested in philosophy. Uh, Nietzsche was often on my bookshelf or Heidegger even at one stage. Um, and so I think at some point middle years of um, college, it all sort of came together and I began to realize, oh, yeah, <laughs> I actually loved I love I love Germany and I love uh, all things German. And uh, and that sort of took me off on, the, on that track. But uh, but yeah, I, I think I was the only German historian who arrived in graduate school uh, not having visited Germany. Uh, and I also never even took a class in German history before I arrived in graduate school. So I always felt like I was doing a little bit of catch up there. Um, but that, yeah, that's about the sort of German, German studies end of it. Uh, about my particular project, um, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do when I arrived outside of uh, German history. I was really interested in intellectual history. And, um, and I guess at some point, well, actually, I know what happened. I took a class with Judy Coffin on gender studies, uh, gender history, and, um, and really started to develop an interest in gender theory at that stage. And in particular on masculinity, there was a lot of work in sort of the mid-1990s coming out on, on the history of masculinity. So I started heading off in that direction. And for her class, I read uh, George Chauncey's book on Gay New York, uh, which is very quickly turning into a classic. And, um, and that, that made a big impact on me. It made me sort of think a lot about how, how might, one might study masculinity, but sort of at the margins, right, from sort of alternate points of view. So much, especially with German history that had focused on masculinity, was about um, you know, the, the military or about sort of Nazi images of, of masculinity. And I wanted to do something a little bit different. So, um, so uh, I initially thought sort of masculinity, but then ended up getting um, interested in sort of gay and lesbian studies and uh, sort of took off from there. Great. Thank you. I think it's always interesting to hear these intellectual origin stories. At this point, I'd like to then move into the introduction of the book itself a little bit. Mm-hmm. And in the intro, you, de- you devote some time to explaining how this book fits in with some of the scholarship that's already been written about your topic. 
And obviously, you're someone who's also uh, worked in the field uh, the, uh, before publishing this book. So I was wondering if you could discuss how this book compares to your own study on post-1945 West Germany, but also how your book fits in with work that other authors have already done. Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, very different kind of kinds of books, first of all. The first one grew out of my dissertation um, and uh, was very much shaped by my dissertation, specifically on Hamburg. So even as it became um, a book about 1950s and 1960s West Germany, um, I was still, to some extent, um, uh, it was it shaped right by that initial research. Um, and it was a book very self-consciously for scholars, right? I never had any sort of um, thought that maybe anybody else would read it besides scholars. Um, also, I should say, wasn't as much fun <laughs> to write because I was under pressure to get it published. And, and you know, at that point, so many people had had some input into it, both dissertation advisors and then the readers. And, uh, and definitely by the time I got it, got it finished, um, I was ready for it to be done. You know, there was some level I was just ready for that project to be over with and sort of move on. Um, so that was sort of the, the, the first book, much more sort of a scholarly book. The second book um, actually had its origin in a phone call. Uh, Bill Cohen, who's the owner and editor-chief of Harrington Park Press, um, he called me and had read my first book and um, said, you know, I liked your first book. I really want somebody to write a book about uh, Nazi persecution of homosexuality and wondered if I would do that. Uh, I had to explain, first of all, that wasn't really my main research area. So I didn't feel like I could write a whole book on that particular topic. But I started thinking about it and and I, I ended up replying to him and saying, you know, I could do a book for you that would be more of a, a kind of a, a synthesis book. Um, I really sort of felt like that was needed at this point. Um, there's so many books that had come out in the 1990s, early 2000s on um, on sort of uh, you know gay life in the 1920s, on uh, not, uh, Nazi persecution of uh, gay and lesbians. Uh, much of that was in German. And so anybody who doesn't speak German couldn't have access to that. And so I explained, well, you know, I could really, I could do a book like that. And I thought that would be really useful. So um, yeah, it ended up being a book on, uh, yeah, sort of the gay experience between 1880s uh, to uh, 1945. Uh, but I did offer an epilogue at the very end of the book that tried to quickly outline what happens afterward. Um, so I could both summarize my own research findings and also integrate it with the work of a few other post-war historians, um, uh, Jennifer Evans and uh, Josie McClellan come to mind. Uh, but I, So that's sort of what I ended up doing. Um, um, so, um, and then in terms of what's already written, I guess I had two big books in mind. Um, first of all, Jim Steakley, his book, on the homosexual emancipation movement in Germany, uh, published back in 1975, one of the very first books um, in this uh, sort of topic, uh, a book that you know has been widely sort of referenced, and um, and I think everybody has. Anytime you start a research project, you have a book like this, right? Sort of a go-to book that that you think I, I could not have written my own book without <laughs> without this existing, and uh, and that was definitely the book for me. So it was a book I had in mind, but I also sort of thought, you know, that was written in 1975 at the very beginning of all this research. Uh, I thought I could update in a lot of ways and bring in some new uh, new ideas, new research, also uh, uh, sort of queer methodology, and do something a little bit different. So I definitely had that book in mind, um, sort of self-consciously when I started writing my book. Um, and then the other uh, big book I had in mind was Robert Beachy's um, uh, new book on Gay Berlin, Birthplace of a Modern Identity. Uh, I'll say this was the book that really scared me, right? This is one of those <laughs> one of those things you, you don't want to find out, right? That you're doing a project and then somebody else is also doing the project. And um, it's uh, very similar to yours. And in this particular case, uh, he had a, uh, a head start. Uh, it was being, uh, it, I knew it was going to be based on original research because I'd read some of the articles that he'd published in, in journals. Um, and I knew he had a big publisher, uh, Knopf, right, that was going to be handling it. Uh, so I, I found this out about halfway through my own project and I thought, oh, crap, right? Uh, what am I going to do now? Uh, uh, am I going to continue? Um, is there anything different I could do? Is all this for nothing? So I just sort of had to wait. And luckily, it did come out before I was done writing. And uh, I read it. And, and 
so my first thought too was, oh crap, it's good, right? It's a good book. <laughs> uh, one that makes some uh, has some w- wonderful stories, stories that I never heard before. Um, and I have, and you know, I've of course read pretty widely on this, and so I was a little surprised by that uh, to have a bunch of stories that I hadn't, hadn't heard before, and that was great. Uh, a lot of stories I hadn't heard before. There's strong original research in it uh, to back up the the arguments that he makes. Um, so that was, well, from my perspective, bad news, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but, um, but the, but so I did, um, after reading it, I contemplated for a little while and I realized, okay, this is a good book, but I can also do something a little different, different. And luckily I had time to respond to it, right. Uh, to sort of shape my own book, um, so that it wouldn't simply rehash what he had done, uh, but would do something different. Um, so I did think, you know, thank goodness, right? I, I've still got something to do. Uh, so first of all, uh, not a whole lot of women in his story. It's mostly men. And I did find that a little surprising, right? Given the amount, uh, just the importance of the lesbian subculture in Berlin, uh, very little about women. So I thought, okay, you know, here's an opening. I can include a little bit more about women than what he's done. Uh, so that was one of my cheap goals was to make sure to bring in uh, female characters, talk about the intersections between the uh, between the feminist movement that was emerging at the time and and uh, in, in the in the homosexual movement, um, and also to talk about the lesbian various lesbian sp- uh, spaces, the uh, the magazines that were out there, the uh, the bars. Uh, so that's one of the big things I wanted to do, and, and then second. Um, his argument is very much based around the formation of a modern identity, right? In the singular, <clears throat> uh, excuse me. Uh, and this did give me an opening to bring in some queer theory. Um, queer theory has emphasized the fluidity of identity, um, takes us um, into a space where there's sort of multiplicity of identities. And this is what I really found remarkable about Germany at the time, uh, just the range of identities. Uh, you've got a socialist, right? Socialist, scientific-minded reformers like Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, uh, quite famous. But then also right-wing-leaning intellectuals like Hans Bluer, um, somebody who's um, today remembered for his writings on the youth movement, um, anti-Semitic writings, extraordinarily um, sort of conservative writings on the state, sometimes seen as almost a kind of proto-fascist. So you've got Hans Bluer, uh, then you have uh, sort of cultured conservative writers like Thomas Mann or uh, Stefan uh, George, um, intellectuals who today we might call closeted, except for the fact that the writings dealt with homoerotic themes in such an open way that uh, for me, it's hard to, you know, to say that they're closeted, right? They're not exactly closeted. Uh, they just don't fit exactly into um, what we would think about as sort of an open uh, gay person today. Um, and then among the Nazis, you had Ernst Röhm, uh, who privately had relations with rent boys and even joined one of the largest organizations for gay men during the early 1930s. Uh, but then also at the same time was an important leader of the Nazi party, right? This party that would wipe out um, the many different aspects of the gay rights movement um, uh, before he himself was murdered in 1934 as part of the Night of Long Knives. Um, so it's, it's complicated, right? It's messy. Uh, and this is one of the reasons that um, I wanted to begin each of the chapters with a personality profile. I mean, if you put together all the personalities that I have at the beginning of the chapters, I think you get a, a real sort of sense of the the diversity um, that's out there. Great. Yeah. And uh, I do think those uh, profiles at the start of each chapter also make the book more readable, too, as a... a oh, great. You know. Thanks. Yeah. That, I'd, I'd sort of hope that. Um, you know, and I, I, one thing I wanted to do for this book, my first book didn't have any pictures. And so uh, this time around, I thought, dang it, I'm going to get some pictures. And uh, so that gave me an opportunity to go out and, and figure out that whole process, something I ne- hadn't had to do before. So that was sort of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, and make, it makes it, the pictures make things come more to life as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I want to just push us in a slightly different direction at this point in the interview. And, you know, I, uh, uh, I don't share this topic as a research interest, but it's, uh, a real interest, uh, for me in the classroom where I'm increasingly trying to incorporate the history of sexuality a little bit more into a lot of my European and German history classes. And for me, uh, one issue I always run into is uh, an issue of language. So this is a question I've actually posed on this podcast before uh, in an earlier interview with Lori Marhofer. Um, I had uh, asked Lori about the challenges with uh, writing LGBT history um, involving language. 
And the terms we'd use today are very different from those of the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think, for example, instead of saying uh, gay, transgender, or sex worker, early 20th century Germans would have said homosexual, transvestite, or prostitute. Um, so you actually discussed this matter in your introduction also, which I thought was interesting. And I was wondering if you could share your own approach with how to deal with this kind of dissonance in terminology between uh, between the present and a century ago. Um, yeah, uh, it's a good question. Question. I mean, nobody doing research on uh, gay and lesbian life in the past um, can ignore this issue. Um, and it gets harder as you go further back into time. Uh, that's one big advantage I had, which is that we're not going that far back into time, right? We're into sort of late 19th, early 20th century. So we're in a time period we could, where we could definitely sort of see something like, um, you know, a gay or a homosexual identity beginning to emerge. Uh, there might be people, be people who would resist it or people who would use different kinds of language for it. Uh, but we can at least say that there is a kind of a public identity out there that people can uh, can respond to in various ways. Uh, you know, it gets much harder if you go back into the Middle Ages, for example, right? Or, you know, a lot of debates, of course, around Greek and Roman time about what you do exactly with male-male um, um, sexuality. So um, it's a little bit easier for my time period, but still, yes, um, there is a little bit of a, a disjuncture there between how we talk about things, how we think about things, and how the Germans at the time did think about it. Um, and so my particular response to that is I'm, I'm a teacher first, um, you know, so especially this, this last book, I, when I was writing it, I always had my students in mind, right? I was thinking about, okay, what would they want to know? What would they find interesting? Uh, it's not that I ignored the scholars because I have a lot of stuff in there for scholars as well, but I did think, okay, what kind of stuff would be useful in my classroom, um, what kind of stuff would they find interesting? So I did try to bring in some, um, some of that aspect to it. So I, I, I'm a teacher first, I would say, in terms of my life, uh, even more than a researcher, though I still could, still continue to do research. And uh, one uh, one effect of that is that I tend to have a pretty pragmatic attitude towards language. Um, I think you need to you know create a balance, a balance between acknowledging and respecting the language that was used at the time. Um, but also the balance that off with the need to communicate easily and effectively today. Um, and so I use the word homosexual probably more than people would be comfortable with today, right? Today, homosexual feels very sort of clinical and maybe old fashioned. Um, but I use it a lot in my book in part because it's the, it's the word that, um, it was used most widely at the time. Um, and it's a word that we can at least connect with, right? We understand. Um, I do use gay and lesbian. Um, here I'm a little bit more self-conscious about, um, about sort of, uh, bending things a little bit. Uh, lesbian is very simple, right? Because lesbian also was a word, um, that, that they used, uh, that's sort of the German equivalent of that. They, they used it. Uh, you could find in the press, lesbians themselves began to identify with that word. So, um, lesbian is very simple. Um, gay is, is harder, right? Because gay, the equivalent of that is schwul. And um, that is not a word that would have been used in German at the time in any sort of um, in any sort of good way, right? It was a very sort of pejorative language, it had very negative connotations. Uh, what I usually tell people is it's sort of roughly equivalent to fag, right? In in a way that there's probably very few people who would use that word unless they were um, you know throwing it at somebody in a very mean mean way. Uh, not many people would identify it with with the word fag um, in, in a kind of positive way. Um, and I and I can't even see it without cringing a little bit, right? That's the kind of reaction I have. And so uh, pro- you know at the time, twenties and thirties, I think that's um, sort of the kind of connotations you would have gotten wish fool. Um, so gay is a little bit more, uh, it's a little bit more difficult, but it is a word that's, uh, people widely use today. People feel more comfortable with people see as roughly synonymous with homosexual. And, um, and so I do talk about gay spaces, gay scenes, um, gay organizations, uh, because I think that these are, these are, this is all sort of the way that we would, we would describe that today. So gay and lesbian I use though a, a little bit more hesitantly. Um, I do use homosexual, uh, probably the most in the book and, uh, and, but still one thing I try to do with my analysis, because I've been influenced, um, uh, by queer theory is to suggest that, okay, this is a category that's messy at the time. 
Um, it included a lot of people and activities that um, that we might group in there today, but it doesn't mean that people always at the time grouped it within that category uh, or vice versa, right? Stuff in that category that we wouldn't, um, wouldn't say necessarily applies. Uh, I think about, um, I mean, you know, I could just use some words here, sort of throw out words, right? Transgender, right? We increasingly are sort of grow, uh, creating a divide between uh, what, you know, homosexuality and transgender, saying those are two separate things. Um, at the time, people wouldn't have seen any sort of difference, right, that they blurred together. Um, cross-dressing, that too is something that we draw a big division between. We sort of say there are cross-dressers who aren't necessarily, uh, not necessarily gay or lesbian. Uh, once again, 20s and 30s, nobody would have, uh, nobody who knew anything about this topic would have uh, drawn any sort of line there. Um, and also they would have used a lot of words that would uh, we would feel probably very uncomfortable with, uh, like pederast or pedophile, right? I mean, we use those in certain kinds of contexts, but once again, right, we draw a big line between, uh, say, a gay man versus a pedophile. We say those are two separate categories. Um, they, a lot of people sort of use those two terms together in the, tw- in the 20s and 30s still. So it is sort of messy, right? And you have to sort of acknowledge that, sort of recognize it, um, just recognize that the you know past is a foreign place, as we sometimes say, and uh, and do our best to uh, do our best to sort of translate, right? Translate what's going on, but in a way that still sort of makes sense to us. Great, thank you. And at this point, I'd like to uh, just touch on in, in your introduction. You briefly touch on some themes that you wanted to trace throughout the book. And I just wanted to ask about one of those themes. Uh, One of them refers to why Germany is so important as a place for queer history. Um, And I was wondering if you could explain why Germany has such uh, resonance for uh, LGBTQ history uh, for our listeners. Uh, Yeah. uh, Well, I guess the place to begin with is uh, as a story, it's got a lot in there. Now, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit, you know, I'm going to talk about this as a story, but uh, I want to make it clear that I'm, I'm not a postmodernist in this way, right? I, I, I don't want to treat it all as just a story. I mean, I, I, as an historian, uh, I'm very much hit by, you know, these are real people. We're real people with real experiences, um, real pain in a lot of ways. And so I don't want to just chalk it up to a story, but, but I, you know, but it is in the end how we connect with it, right? We connect with it through stories. And, um, and the story of Germany is, is fascinating and it's got a lot of drama to it. Uh, a lot of points where different kinds of people can, can connect in. Uh, so to begin with, you've got, a, you've got people to admire, right? Uh, sort of heroes. Um, Karl Heinrich Ulrichs coming to mind. Magnus Hirschfeld, of course, being one that a lot of people have uh, come back to over the years. Uh, Kurt Hiller, somebody who also is beginning to, I think, emerge as sort of a separate personality within the scholarship. Uh, now, these are all flawed heroes, and that's one thing that historians have increasingly tried to emphasize, right, the way that they were flawed. But I think, you know, it, it, this day and age, right, uh, we're all we're used to flawed heroes, right? We love our antiheroes. The, this is the generation of Breaking Bad, right? So uh, we're used to heroes uh, uh, being flawed. And um, I think we can uh, uh, we can see that, that these are people who are uh, were heroes in their own way, but yes, had, had some problems, too. Uh, so you've got you've got people you can connect with. You've got these kind of heroes of the story. You've got the myth, right? The myth of Weimar Germany is a kind of a golden age for non-normative sexuality. Um, a myth has been slowly chipped away at over the years by scholars, but still very much thrives. Um, I guess this is largely because of Christopher Isherwood. Um, the stories that he published in the early 1930s uh, eventually turned into uh, the 1972 film Cabaret based on his stories. Um, but also, and I do sometimes wonder this, you know, ask me how I got into German history and I've sometimes wondered this myself. I I was a huge fan of David Bowie growing up. Uh, you know, I'm a kid of the 1980s. I loved David (laughs) Bowie when I was, uh, sort of early teens. Uh, so huge Bowie fan. And I do sometimes wonder how much I maybe unconsciously absorbed Bowie's fascination with Weimar era Berlin. So that later on in college, when I began to read about German history, I felt right at home in a lot of the 1920s material. Um, and, I, and, you know, uh, Bowie is somebody that people continue to listen to. Uh, the whole Ziggy Stardust personality, right, is um, sort of subconsciously influenced everybody from Marilyn Manson to, you know, uh, sort of goth, other goth rockers. So, I, you know, I sometimes wonder how much that's 
out there, right? There's a kind of uh, fascination with decadence and Weimar Germany is, uh, you know, arguably sort of the, the archetype for that. Um, so you've got Weimar, which has all sorts of fascinating stuff going on. Uh, and then in terms of political drama, you've got the drama of the 1920s. You've got the story of the of the sodomy law, paragraph 175, and this movement that gets going to, uh, to overturn it or at the very least reform it. Um, and then um, uh, 1929, there is a near miss, right? Um, uh, it, it almost almost gets uh, passed, or at least that was a story that we always told, right? That almost gets passed, um, and then the Great Depression hits, and um, and that sort of gets thrown out the window, and the Nazis come into power. So this sort of near miss, right? So you got the drama, the near miss. Uh, we now know that it's a little bit more complicated than simply the Great Depression. Uh, further historians have done more research and realize, oh, actually it got overturned in yet another committee long before it ever hit the uh, parliament floor. Uh, so we backtracked a little bit from blaming it on the Great Depression. But uh, but still, you have this uh, drama of, you know, almost, almost reform, but then it didn't work out. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the horrifying experience of the Nazi persecution. Uh, which since the 1970s has been turned into the archetypical story of persecution for all LGBTQ peoples. Um, and then finally, the chapter that I focused on my first book, um, just to bring that back up, um, you know, despite all the concentration camps, the police brutality, you have the story of this life um, coming back after 1945, uh, recreating a gay scene. That was something that I, in particular, was interested in my first book. So the recreation of a gay scene, how that took place, new organizations. Um, some of them remind us a little bit of the old 1920s, early 1930s organizations. So new organizations, uh, magazines. And again, magazines that sometimes remind us of the magazines published back during the Weimar era. Um, and eventually uh, doing what the movement hadn't been able to do back in 1929, which is uh, reform paragraph 175. So that um, uh, uh, male homosexuality is finally uh, legalized. And that happens in 1969. And this allows for everything um, that happens during the 70s and 80s to take place. The uh, revival of, of gay life, the um, the eventual organization of uh, gay neighborhoods and cities like Berlin and uh, Hamburg and Munich. Um, so, yeah, uh, I've always found this side of the story really fascinating, this kind of story of revival and, and new life that takes place after the Nazi period. All right. Well, at this point, I want to move into just a few specifics from a couple of your chapters. And in chapter one, you provide a lot of interesting background. Uh, you're largely focused there on the late 19th century. And uh, as is the case with many histories of this era, you discuss the importance of Magnus Hirschfeld, who has already been mentioned in the podcast. Um, mm -hmm. The book in the chapter situates this famous figure quite well in the context of his own times, I think. Many, um, many listeners might be familiar with Hirschfeld. What they might not realize is how other activists articulated um, very different beliefs and approaches that Hirschfeld didn't just represent the only, the only voice. So uh, you show some divisions in the early German movement for gay rights or uh, homosexual emancipation, as it was known then. You highlight some of the differences, especially between Hirschfeld and a figure named Adolf Brand in this first chapter. Mm -hmm. um, so I just thought maybe you could describe some of the other important thinkers in this movement and how they clashed with Hirschfeld starting in the late 19th century, but really feel free to, you know, branch off into some of the other chapters of the book in the later time periods also, if you think that would be interesting. Yeah, good. Yeah, I may take it forward into the 1920s a little bit, if that's okay. Uh, but let's start off, yeah, during the initial movement. So, uh, yeah, you've got Hirschfeld, um, who, like you said, uh, anybody who's done any reading on German sexuality is going to come, come across Hirschfeld's name very fast. Um, and uh, he's sort of a divisive figure. I mean, on the one hand, he's um, somebody to admire in a lot of ways. He's a very enlightened um, person, somebody interested in science who really does believe that scientific knowledge can free people's minds, um, change laws, and ultimately change the world, right? So a very optimistic, uh, sort of enlightened figure, uh, driven by science, um, uh, definitely a, a sort of so socialist sympathizer, um, and uh, believes in the future, right? So that's Hirschfeld. But 
on the other side, uh, he did have this kind of vision of what homosexuality meant that can be um, feel very alien to us today. He had this idea that homosexuality represented simply a version of a larger intersexuality, um, where there were lots of different kinds of people um, who blurred together aspects of uh, of gender, whether that's sort of physical gender or, or um, sort of more mental personality aspects of gender or behavior. Uh, so there's lots of different versions of this intersexuality, and homosexuality is just sort of one one aspect of that. Now, you know, it's interesting. There's some aspects of that that feel very modern today in the um, in sort of the, the the world of queer theory, right? This idea of sort of blurring and so on. But on the other hand, he really tried to anchor this intersexuality in a biological basis um, to suggest, for example, that um, that you could take a look at the bodies of, uh, of gay men and identify aspects that, uh, that were feminine or vice versa, right? Take a look at the bodies of, uh, of lesbians and you could find aspects of something identifiable there that's masculine. So that sort of biological basis of, uh, of Hirschfeld feels very alien to us, feels very strange. And a lot of people have had issues with that over the years. So that's Hirschfeld. Brandt too has uh, been a very divisive character. He, um, uh, on the one hand, he comes to represent this group that we now generally call the masculinists. Um, it's a group that uh, very much uh, rejects Hirschfeld early on and says, no, this has nothing to do with intersexuality. Gay men can be extraordinarily masculine, right? It, it's not, there's nothing necessarily effeminate um, about a gay man. Uh, and so he always insists on that. And I do think that there have been people, men over the years who have, been able to connect with that, right? Connect with this sort of sense that no, okay, I'm gay, but I also feel very much a man, and um, and and uh, and I, I live among other men, and this is the masculine a masculine world that I live in. So uh, there have been pieces of it that um, I think um, more modern day readers can sort of connect with and sympathize with. Also, one other thing I'll just put out there: that there was a whole sort of school for a while influenced by Foucault who believed that Brand was essentially rejecting science, uh, resisting the power of science to categorize us, to impact our identities. Um, and for a period of time during the 70s and 80s, this felt very heroic. And so I think there was a tendency during that time, but for some people to sort of see Brand as a, as a kind of a forerunner of this, somebody who was going to reject the ability of, of science to put us into little boxes. Uh, so that's sort of the upside to Brandt. Um, the downside to Adolf Brandt was that his masculineness um, had been connected with political tendencies that uh, that feel dangerous. Uh, definitely heavy doses of uh, sort of a romantic German uh, or sorry German romanticism, uh, which often connects in with nationalism and in uh, in racism. You get elements of racism in there. You get uh, elements of anti-Semitism in there. Hans Bluer, who I've already mentioned, Hans Bluer emerged out of that circle, and he uh, definitely uh, became sort of somebody who wrote tracks against the women's movement. So there's a lot of very conservative tendencies within that masculinist movement. Not entirely. uh, And it's interesting, Brandt himself was an anarchist. Um, and, and a number of the writers in that particular group were anarchists. So they were sort of left wing, um, but, um, but they didn't fit very nicely in the political spectrum as we define it. Um, they sort of, again, sort of a messy group. So interesting stuff, but also stuff that makes it identify, able or difficult for us to connect in with it directly. So that's uh, that's the big sort of division we've seen for years. We've got Hirschfeld on the one side with his scientific um, humanitarian committee, and then we've got uh, Brandt with the other group of masculinists. And uh, already back in the 1970s, there were scholars writing about this. Jim Stakely was probably the English language writer to identify this division for us most clearly. Uh, but as we sort of move forward, we begin to realize that it's even more complicated than that. Um, so a lot of research has been done since the end of the 1990s on Friedrich Radzivite, uh, who's become one of my sort of favorite, uh, characters in the story. Uh, Radzivite's a, a middle-class publisher. Um, he puts forward a kind of vision of emancipation based on legal rights. So as opposed to the sort of scientific-based discourse that, um, that Hirschfeld always used, Ratzevite tended to rely more on a notion of, of legal rights, right? Other kind of legal legal discourse. So he's interested in legal rights. Um, also, use this kind of language of social respectability, 
Um, and, and this is the stuff that turns a lot of people off. Um, because what he essentially argued was if gay people could um, act respectively, they could learn to dress like other middle-class people, avoid the streets, quit visiting prostitutes, um, uh, certainly uh, didn't cross-dress or anything that would sort of make them stand out, uh, then they would be accepted as equals. And if they could be accepted as equals, they would get rights and uh, would eventually be accepted as sort of you know full fledged members of, of society. Uh, so it was a particular kind of strategy that he identified himself with and, and came to champion. Um, you know, that over the years has um, felt very, uh, very old fashioned, right? Some people have sort of seen it as a kind of positive, I guess, a, a politics of the closet. Um, definitely, um, uh, you know, feels sort of out of place in the gay and lesbian movement of the 1960s and 1970s. So uh, he's sort of, a, he's an interesting figure um, because he did have this sort of vision of a broad-based middle-class gay rights movement, uh, but again, using language that, uh, that, we, that we don't feel very comfortable with today. Um, seems to create more divisions than it does sort of unify people. Though I will say, I mean, he's he's even more complicated than that because he's uh, he did have this enormous publishing business, and that publishing business ended up uh, producing not only magazines and newspapers for gay men, but the very first magazines for for lesbians were produced by his group. And for a period of time, he even produced a magazine that aimed at uh, aimed at crossdressers. It didn't didn't really take off, so it didn't last very long. Uh, but that, but that itself suggests that there might even be room for, you know, for crossdressers. Um, so there's maybe this idea of respectability was perhaps a little bit more sort of broad based than than we might assume just uh, looking at the face of it. So you've got Friedrich Radzivite, also really interesting person who, again, a lot of research is coming out now on him. Um, and then you've got Kurt Hiller. Um, Kurt Hiller, who also is really interesting. It doesn't fit very easily anywhere. Um, on the one hand, he definitely agrees with the kind of stereotype of the effeminate homosexual that Hirschfeld seems to be propagating through his work. So he doesn't agree with that. But on the other hand, he definitely doesn't like the masculinist. Um, he thinks that they're way too elitist, um, uh, doesn't like the conservative tendencies. Kurt Hiller was also Jewish and so probably was turned off by some of the anti-Semitic rhetoric that you found among the masculinists. Um, so he doesn't fit in there. Um, he also doesn't like Razzivite, though, uh, because he uh, is sort of elitist himself. He's an intellectual, somebody identified with, um, with expressionist poetry and expressionist art. Um, it seems to think that this idea of, of, of organizing homosexuals on a kind of broad movement based on publications, you know, sort of fun publications and social clubs is also just sort of wrong-minded. Um, so he ends up basically siding with Hirschfeld. He becomes one of the big leaders in Hirschfeld's um, organization, though it is pretty clear that he has his own private disagreements with Hirschfeld. And as time goes on, um, Hiller increasingly sort of distances himself from Hirschfeld. And then when Hirschfeld is forced to retire uh, during an enormous uh, sort of s scandal that happens uh, around 1929, uh, Hiller ends up sort of taking it over for a brief period of time um, and running the organization before the Nazis sort of step in. Um, Hiller, I'll just mention, is somebody who reemerges uh, again after the war. So he manages to get through the war uh, amazingly alive, right, even though he spends some time in a concentration camp. Uh, but he gets out, uh, immigrates to England, comes back to Germany in the 1950s, um, and has uh, a, a whole other chapter in his life during the, during the post-war period. Um, so again, right, lots of, lots of different people, more divisions, I think, than we recognized at one stage during the research. Great. And at this point, then I would like to maybe uh, step us back to the turn of the century. Um, and in your second chapter, you really organize things around several prominent scandals. Um, mm -hmm. And the scandal is always a nice device for historians uh, to try to understand, yeah. you know, uh, w you know, what's going on socially and culturally at a time. I was wondering if you could pick one of these scandals that you'd most like to describe here and in the process, um, you know, show us what its larger meaning is to your analysis in the book. 
Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, scandals are always fun, right? Historians love scandals in part because they're fun to read about. And um, also they produce uh, a lot of historical material. You know, I always sort of tell my my students that, uh, you know, good times make for boring history. <laughs> <laughs> good times don't produce a lot of stuff. And so, you know, if you have a decade of just everybody ha- being happy, we historians probably aren't going to be writing about it. Uh, uh, not much to say and uh, probably not a whole lot to base our research on. Um, and, uh, so yeah, scandals, scandals always generate, uh, a probably quite painful In fact, We yeah. know quite painful for the people who live through them, but for historians who have to write about them, give us a lot of material to work with. And, um, so, uh, uh you know, yeah, number of scandals you could point to the one that a lot of people have done research on. And probably the one that I'll talk about here is the Eulenburg scandal. Um, uh, other people have written about this. I can't claim to be the the first person to do it, or uh, even the best person to have written about this. Uh, Robert Beachy writes a, uh, about this scandal a lot in his own book. Norman uh, DeMeyer has written a book about it quite recently. That's just to name a couple of sort of recent publications. Um, it's uh, it's important, right? It's an it's a huge scandal at the Kaiser's court. Um, involving one of the uh, chief members at his court, his sort of chief advisor, a very good friend. Um, and he's essentially outed in the press. Um, a kind of uh, liberal nationalist writer ends up outing him. And um, it, inv- it eventually sort of spirals into a series of court cases that uh, that uh, Eulenburg is forced to uh, defend himself in and, uh, you know, effectively, effectively loses, um, you know, it, by the time it's all done, uh, Eulenburg is pretty much branded as, um, yeah, as, as a homosexual and not only as a homosexual, but as a potential danger to the state because he was homosexual. Um, a lot of historians have looked back to this as maybe the first moment when, when a homosexual is identified as a danger to the state. And, um, and then people have suggested that this whole notion of, um, of the homosexual as a danger to the state gets picked up by the Nazis later on during the 19, uh, 1930s, 1940s, right? And the way that they vil- uh, villainized uh, uh, gay men and turned them into right a, a class of people that had to be hunted down and thrown into concentration camps. Um, and then later on, after 1945, during the period that I do research on, during the Cold War, um, there's a kind of close identification that's made between communism and and homosexuals. And once again, you get this idea that that gay men were uh, maybe there were sort of secretive groups of gay men who were uh, also communists who were somehow undermining society or um, um, spreading lies. Um, yeah, that somehow they were they were dangerous, and and at the very least, their homosexuality might lay them open to blackmail, and communists could use that 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 blackmail to get state secrets and stuff like that. Uh, so uh, yeah, perhaps the sort of first moment that we can identify historically, anyway, when when a, when a gay man was was turned into an enemy of the state, and um, it's uh, so yeah, it, it's also important for a lot of other reasons. Um, not only a big scandal at the time involving arguably the most powerful man in Germany next to the Kaiser himself, but uh, it's also possibly the scandal that turned homosexuality into a major public discussion for the very first time. And so a lot of historians had suggested this is the moment when ideas, even language about homosexuality begins to uh, sort of spread throughout society, that people sort of get used to used to this idea and used to some of these uh, this language. Um, so it, it has an enormous impact on the public sphere, a lot of scholars have suggested. Um, the funny thing is Hirschfeld himself anticipated this, which is probably the chief reason that he agreed to serve as an expert witness um, during the trial. Uh, this is something that's always puzzled people. Why would Hirschfeld, this emancipated person, uh, get involved with this trial that turns into such a huge disaster? Um, and I do think it's because he he saw the opportunity to get new ideas out there and to change people's minds. Uh, what he didn't realize was that he wouldn't be able to control the process. Um, he would entirely lose control of the language, lose control of um, everything. I mean, there was um, very easy to find uh, political cartoons done at the time, uh, making fun of the Kaiser and the Kaiser's court, but in in very sort of disparaging ways, a lot of jokes that were told at the time. Uh, so he entirely lost control of the whole public process. And if anything, it generated a huge moral panic. 
um, that uh, was was not at all what he had hoped for, right? Not this kind of public um, education that he believed the the, the trial might turn into uh, instead. And uh, so it's uh, it's really revealing a lot of ways, right? It's a little bit of a turning point in terms of public discourse. It's a turning point for uh, the movement itself in a lot of ways. One thing I talked about is how the movement uh, the movement itself is is forced to respond to the Eulenburg uh, process and change gears a little bit, create new alliances, right? They effectively went out and tried to create new alliances um, after sort of the damaging moral panic that took place. Uh, so it has an effect on Hirschfeld, has an effect on the organization, has an effect on the wider public sphere. Uh, I should say that I've always been a little surprised that this hasn't yet been turned into a major film. So this is just going to be my own <laughs> little idea I'm going to put out there. Maybe somebody will pick up on it. To me, it has all the elements, right? We love historical dramas right now. Uh, you know, all the opportunities for costumes. And and this one, I mean, has such great potential. Uh, you've got You've got scandal, right? A huge sort of scandal around a royal court. You've got the royalty, which always <laughs> makes for good, good either TV miniseries or movies. Uh, you've got hints of espionage sort of behind it. Uh, there've always been sort of hints that maybe it was people in the court itself um, hoping to get rid of Eulenberg, who basically who basically leaked the material uh, that began the whole uh, scandal. So hints of uh, sort of court espionage, um, all culminating in a massive courtroom drama. Um, and to me, so it sounds like a winner. Uh, I don't have the ability to make movies, but maybe somebody will eventually do it. I think it would make do, it really Do you have a script? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I don't. If I was a script writer, I'd be totally working on this right now. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I'd like to then jump forward into uh, the Weimar Republic once again. Um, mm-hmm. And I think for both academic historians of an earlier era, but also for non-specialists today, the Weimar Republic is viewed as um, this golden age for non-normative sexuality. And I think your book synthesizes lots of research that increasingly calls that narrative into question. So can you reflect upon how our view of the 1920s is changing as research about sexuality in German history becomes more vibrant? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I will say that I'm sort of ambivalent about Weimar at this stage of my life, because on one hand, there is still a piece of me that very much connects with it. Um, I mean, like I said, this goes back to my David Bowie <laughs> fandom days, right? I still, you know, I still love Weimar and I go into my class uh, that deals with Weimar Germany. And, um, and, you know, first thing I do is sort of try to get them excited. It's very easy to do because you've got all sorts of great art. You've got the amazing art, the amazing film of the, of the twenties. You've got, um, you know, architecture, if you like architecture, you've got the Bauhaus, you've got, um, uh, you've still got a lot of, you know, great movies. And actually now this, um, uh, new mini series uh, Babylon Berlin yeah. uh, that some people have seen that sort of can introduce people to uh, the Weimar era, uh, and then you've got all this just great stuff happening. You've got youth, you've got a youth movement that was probably the thing that I first got attracted to back during um, undergraduate school when I when I read this uh, book by Peter Gay on on uh, on inside uh, Weimar Germany, and. Um, and uh, the youth movement, you had the, all these young people sort of wandering the countryside and look a little bit like Boy Scouts, but also look a little bit like uh, like early hippies. You know, they're singing songs and and uh, growing their hair long and and uh, leaving sort of leading sort of the rebellious life. Um, so you got the youth movement. You've uh, and then you've got right. You've got this uh, fantastic sort of nightlife, and as part of the nightlife, you've got the um, you know people listening to jazz and going out to, um, uh, into the gay bars and uh, the various cross-dressing clubs like the El Dorado, which is still quite famous. And um, so a lot of different, a lot of stuff to be excited about. And I don't want to downplay that because I think there was a lot of excitement for people who lived through it at the time. And specifically when it comes to sort of gay and lesbian life, right, there, there was absolutely an enormous publishing industry that got going. Um, like you know, nothing the world has seen before. Um, sort of, no, a lot of magazines and journals out there. You've got people writing about homosexuality in, in, in a much freer way. A lot of diversity of opinion in a way that I've already sort of talked about. Right, a real diversity of opinion about homosexuality. So debates. Um, you've got. Um, 
uh, oh, you, and you've got a you've got a movie. Uh, Hirschfeld himself <laughs> sort of is a, like a, a mini star. That's probably stating it too far, but he plays a role in this uh, kind of educational film that that gets a lot of press and a lot of people see. So there's a lot of opportunities and, um, and a lot of a lot of fun stuff happening. But um, the, da- the the downside is that yeah, it's not quite so rosy as we one time uh, thought, and uh, we still sometimes see it. Um, that by the mid-1920s, the conservatives definitely had rallied. Uh, they had rallied. Um, they were passing laws, making it increasingly difficult to publish. And, and even if you could publish, you couldn't necessarily get anybody to buy your magazines because uh, one thing it did was make it very difficult to put your magazines out. Uh, I mean, you couldn't just simply, by the end of the 1920s, very hard to get them out into a kiosk without having all your magazines confiscated. Uh, and so, yeah, you could go, you know, people could go into newspaper sellers and ask for them, but, but, you know, that's pretty, pretty risky, right. To go in and basically sort of have to vocalize that this is what you want. Um, so there were laws that were making it increasingly difficult to, uh, sort of get that material out there. Yes. There's a lot of, a uh, lot of titles. That's what people always sort of see a lot of, a lot of titles. If you simply look at the titles of magazines published in the 1920s, it looks quite impressive. What people often miss is the reason there are so many titles is that magazines were trying to find ways to avoid the censors. <laughs> and so they would publish underneath one title for a period of time. The censor would pick them up and put them on the list, and then they would change title um, and do that for a couple of months. And then when that got censored, they changed title again. Um, so a lot of that sort of, uh, it created this kind of proliferation of titles, but it doesn't mean necessarily there were any more uh, magazines out there at any given time. Um, so um, uh, publishing may be not quite as exciting or, or um, vibrant as we once thought. Uh, what else? We've got, uh, we just have to remember also the constant lurking violence behind uh, behind the 1920s, right? A number of really prominent assassinations took place, especially in the early 1920s. And even after that, uh, those assassinations calmed down. Um, and Hirschfeld himself was subjected to a number of, uh, of very dangerous physical attacks, right? Uh, a bombing in one case and, you know, beatings. Um and so it was it was really dangerous for some of these figures, right? I mean, we always tend to of course know that the Nazis are sort of lurking behind there somewhere and um and that's that was a reality um that these people had to had to deal with um so there's violence underneath it all um and 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 because of all the dangers, it was one of the reasons I think that the gay rights movement was so divided um that they were were dealing with some real problems um confronting real dangers and had some real serious debates about what the best way to move forward was uh whether you do try to you know pull together people into the masses or whether you just focus on 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 the people who really make decisions the politicians and the intellectuals um and, and hope that they eventually make the right decision. Um, so very different kinds of political strategies that emerge out of a, a out of a time when, um, yeah, there's some real problems that the that the movement is facing. So I'd like to bring the interview uh, a little bit full circle at this point because I remember at the start of the interview you said, in some ways, the start of this book was an editor asking you to write a book about the Nazi era. Mm-hmm. And although you didn't feel comfortable doing that, um, this book does go, go all the way to 1945. So you do have a significant final section of the book that deals with the Nazi era. And so I wanted to give you a mm-hmm. chance to talk a little bit about what you wrote about the Nazi era and this era of coordinated violence against uh, Germany's uh, queer community. And uh, what sorts of interpretations does your book uh, talk about uh, and what sorts of inter- interpretations does it introduce about this era? Okay. Uh, yeah. So um, yeah, the final chapter, at least right before the epilogue, which deals with sort of the post 45 period uh, does talk about the Nazis. And I begin with a little bit of a section about, uh, about Horum, who was the leader of the essay uh, that I talked about earlier. Um, somebody who was uh out is probably not entirely right, but was was outed certainly in the press and people in the even Hitler himself, I think, sort of understood uh, that that room was gay, um, and so you know it was sort of sort of prominent in that way. 
Uh, so I begin with a little bit of a picture and bio of him and then use that as a way to sort of introduce uh, the problem of, of uh, Nazism and homosexuality. Um, you know, there is this sort of issue that, that Horm was so, um, uh, so influential for a period of time. And I think over the years has created this kind of uh, stereotype that, that maybe all the Nazis were somehow closeted or closeted or maybe repressed homosexuals, that there's kind of a, a lurking homoeroticism to a lot of, to the Nazi party. And if you have that kind of impression, you don't have to go too far before you start encountering um, uh, you know, major statues, for example, Nazi statues of uh, very attractive men, uh, bare chest, right, uh, looking strong and, and, and physical. Uh, and, and it is definitely the case that if, you know, fast forwarding to the 1950s and 1960s, it was interesting to me how many of the magazines, can, uh, the gay magazines continue to run artwork published underneath the Nazis, uh, reproductions of uh, pr- uh, of stills done by Lenny Riefenstahl or, um, or, or images of some of the statues. Um, uh, you could find that actually in the gay and lesbian, the gay magazines of the fifties. Of um, so there has been this sort of, uh, you know, idea of a kind of lingering homoeroticism of the Nazi party. Uh, but one thing I try to sort of emphasize is that, um, yes, it was sort of there, but, uh, but very early on it's sort of squashed. And, and the Nazis, maybe as a kind of backlash to that homoeroticism, make it very clear by 1930, uh, 1935, 1936, what their position on homosexuality is. Um, and they began enormous police raids in the course of 1935 of some of the big cities like, uh, like Berlin and Hamburg, uh, sort of peaking in 1936. Um, so enormous police raids, uh, many gay men are rounded up and thrown into concentration camps for long periods of time, uh, where they suffer everything else that, that other people have, uh, uh, have described, right. The kind of suffering that goes along with, with living through the concentration camps, many would, would die while they were there. In fact, uh, probably the, the bulk of them, uh, bulk of them did, uh, pass away while they were there. If they spent any extended time in the concentration camps anyway, um, and even some lesbians. So lesbians were not. Uh, specifically targeted, uh, but could be rounded up anyway as part of a sort of larger class that uh, that were called asocials, which was sort of a broad term the Nazis used for anybody who just didn't fit in, and could be used to uh, against uh, prostitutes. And there were some lesbian prostitutes who were arrested, uh, or simply people who caused work of trouble, or or uh, or otherwise people who were sort of identified by the wider population as just sort of atypical. Um, and so there were cases of lesbians who got who were rounded up and thrown into concentration camps, but never quite as maybe extensively as the men. Um, and then, you know, there's other things, right? Uh, besides that, there's, of course, the interrogations, the, the, the SS interrogations or police interrogations that led up to imprisonment that could be quite brutal, in which um, effectively gay men very often ended up giving up names because they had to, right? They were under torture, uh, gave up names. And that, I think that sort of that guilt, right, would essentially live with them forever, right, of having given up names. Um, and then... Um, Oh, and then sterilization, right? The other big thing that we always read about that many gay men opted for sterilization with the hope that maybe would get them out of the concentration camps. Um, and that itself could be a, a, a brutal and um, health debilitating procedure. So um, just a lot of, uh, right, a lot of really just difficult experiences to read about, difficult experiences to, for me to write about. Uh, but um I guess if there's anything I tried to do, I mean, a lot of what I tried to do was simply summarize research. Uh, there has been a lot of this written um, in the past, uh, you know, 20, 30 years, but a lot of it in German. So I wanted to take some of this uh, research that's been done by German scholars and make it available to English language scholars. Uh, that was, uh, above all, one of my primary goals. Um, but also wanted to synthesize. Uh, there's always been a bit of a debate about where did this uh, where did this hatred of homosexuality come from exactly, especially considering um, what we know about the sort of uh, hints of homo- homoeroticism in a party? Where did it come from? Um, and a lot of debates about that, uh, whether it was fi- primarily fueled by paranoia. There have been some people who suggested that they were so p- paranoid about their own homoeroticism that it, it effectively created a kind of backlash. 
Um, so whether it was a fueled by paranoia, was it fueled by um, concerns about masculinity, right? An effort to sort of create a certain image of what a man was supposed to be underneath the Nazis and everything else didn't fit. So it was primarily gender concerns. Was it racial concerns? Uh, was that the, the primary um, concern uh, dr- driving much of this? And so uh, trying to make a kind of rough equivalent between racial persecution of Jewish people and then the persecution of, uh, uh, of gay men. Um, so a lot of debates over that. I do summarize that. But I guess if there's anything that I try to do is to integrate a bunch of this research with a kind of new emerging view of Nazism. Uh, for a long time, we tried to say Nazism was one thing. Right. There were so many debates during the 60s and 70s, especially about what what fascism was, what Nazism was, basically trying to spell it down to a single ideology. And since the 1980s, I think there has been a movement, first of all, to sort of develop this idea that the Nazi party was a kind of broad, uh, it's often called a broad protest movement. And as a protest movement, it's a little bit of an umbrella. Um, an umbrella group, right? An umbrella group that that uh, could bring within it a lot of different um, kinds of people. You've got veterans, right? Veterans uh, left over from the uh, First World War, um, other kinds of people who are maybe failures. Um, Eichmann, for example, being a famous example of, uh, of a failed insurance agent who uh, sort of reinvents his life within the Nazi party. Uh, so people who had would, sort of took an opportunity to reinvent themselves. Uh, but then as the party became more popular, um, there were a lot, a lot of more sort of traditional conservatives who came into the party. And uh, with that sort of traditional conservatism came not only a lot of nationalist desires and racial language, which had always been there, but uh, but increasingly um, you know, ideas about religion, um, but also some more modern ideas about sexuality, too. And there were definitely sort of eugenic experts who hoped that uh, uh, Nazism would be an opportunity to think about sexuality in a more modern, more scientific ways. Um, and that um, could be more modern, but also not necessarily more friendly to homosexuality. So lots of different people all bringing their perspectives. And, and once again, within the sort of rubric of, of queer sexuality, we begin to realize just how messy it is. And the Nazi party too was a very messy place uh, with lots of different competing visions, lots of different competing programs. And, um, and it's not, it's definitely not the case that one particular program won out over others. And so lot, the, the short of it is lots of different justifications. And it's hard for me to say that one necessarily was the dominant one, but they all sort of blurred together within this uh, sort of broad political pla- platform. Great. Thank you very much. And uh, Clayton, I think at this point, we've taken up uh, an awful lot of your time. And I really appreciate you agreeing to be on the podcast today. Mm-hmm. Um, before I let you go, um, I would like to pose a traditional New Books Network question, and that is, what project are you working on now? Yeah, so I'm uh, sort of switching gears. Um, after doing two books on sexuality, I am uh, just sort of tired of it, actually. I've had a number of people ask me to do new stuff, and I've had to say, you know, uh, two books, that's maybe enough. I need to move on. Plus, I, I mentioned earlier that I'm a teacher, I'm sorry, a teacher more than a researcher. Um, and so a lot of my interests are focused at this point on things that would be useful in a classroom, um, things inspired by often specific problems that I have in a classroom. Uh, I was on uh, a couple a couple of years ago, I was taking a run. And uh, during my run, I was thinking about just the problems I was having teaching this particular topic in class. And and out of that came, you know, a new idea for, for a book. Um, oh, you know, it, nobody's written that. So maybe I had to do it. Maybe I need to get some help to do it and that kind of thing. Uh, but, but broadly, I am sort of shifting gears towards more political history, uh, partially because that's the stuff that students actually want to read. Uh, but, uh, but also, so political history, um, I probably will be doing some, some books on that also, uh, shifting forward chronologically from the fifties and sixties to the seventies. So I've gotten very interested in the seventies, which is my own childhood. Um, and really want to go back and revisit what it was like to be alive during, uh, Germany in the 1970s, uh, 70s, really, again, really turbulent, but also exciting time in Germany, at least for an historian, a lot of great stuff to talk about there. Um, uh, economic problems, terrorism, um, interesting philosophers like Habermas, who I want to try to figure out how to integrate into a book someday. Um, uh, and then, so the, my, right now, what I'm thinking about is a book about social democracy, 
And the way I'm envisioning this is uh, a book about the challenges of being a socialist in the 1970s um, during this era in which uh, on the one hand, you've got sort of the, the student movement, um, other sort of left wing groups, all sort of suggesting we need to be taking things further and faster than a lot of the traditional social Democrats wanted to go. You've got social Democrats uh, finally in power after so many years and dealing with just realities of being in power, um, having to steer Germany through the Cold War, um, to some extent defining new positions for Germany in within the Cold War. Uh, they become architects of, of what we eventually call detente. Um, and so a lot of interesting stuff happened with the Cold War there. Uh, also, uh, labor unions uh, plan on going to Germany this summer and doing some research on what's going on with labor union politics. Um, and so it's sort of that's and currently how I'm thinking about it is a, is a book about sort of uh, the challenges of being a kind of moderate, moderate socialist in um, in the 1970s. That sounds like a pretty compelling project. And uh if and when you see it to completion, hopefully either I or one of uh, the other co-hosts on New Books in German Studies can have you back on the show. All right, And great, uh, Clayton, I just really want to thank you for coming on today. Uh, and I would highly recommend your, uh, your book to our listeners. It strikes the right balance between uh, accessibility on the one hand and sophistication on the other hand. So... Wonderful. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And to our listeners, I'd like to let you all know that you have been listening to New Books in German Studies. I'm your host for today, Michael O'Sullivan. Um, Our guest today was uh, Clayton Wisnett, and we discussed his book, Queer Identities and Politics in Germany, A History, 1880 to 1945. The book appeared with Harrington Park Press in 2016. Please stay stay tuned in the future for more New Books Network podcasts and more podcasts on New Books in German Studies. Thank you very much.